uh, hey, it's exciting to be in the house of God. It's great how I'm not going to go. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Do you want me to repeat myself? My kids mute me all the time. They're like, oh, that again. <laughs> uh, we, are, we are really fortunate this morning to have with us uh, friends and family. I, I consider Nina, Kyle, I consider you family also. I mean, you're like, you've become a brother. I mean, you, you actually have an office in our offices that you don't ever use. But I told you, you can come over anytime time you. But Nina uh, and Kyle Downey, Kyle and Nina Downey, their daughter and a new addition on the way. There are missionaries to Thailand, and there are they're working with and ministering to Muslims in Thailand. And we're blessed that they're with us this morning. They're not going to be sharing this morning, but I want them to come up real quick because I want you to know who they are. So will you guys come up? Give a warm hillside. while I was still working in the steel industry. And uh, in that first year, I remember uh, I, I came and there was all these girls, it was on a Sunday night, there was all these junior high girls in this group. And here I was this big football player, you know, steel worker. Uh, and, and I came in and there's all these junior high girls. And I was like, oh, well, what do you guys want to do and talk about? You know, so it was just, it was an interesting moment. But what was really, really cool about it is Nina was one of our leaders, even as a very early and a very early age, and they said, well, we want to know what you do down on the streets of Portland. And so uh, God used those young ladies when the very first Saturday we went out to minister on the streets. I just want you to know, God had been speaking to me for years. My wife knows this. Uh, for years, the word more. And I kept thinking, more of me, God, there's no more to give. I mean, I'm out on the streets, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, I don't know what God I can do. And as I saw these young girls with these sacks of lunches in these bags and beginning to feed the homeless, God spoke to me again and said, not more from you, but more of you. And so now I look and I see some 17 years later, you are a full-time missionary at the time. And I'm thinking, come on. And Timo and Nancy, will you guys just stand real quick so we can say hi to you guys? If you haven't met Timo and Nancy, I'm going to give my one finished word to uh, to the, the Peltomaki family. And uh, welcome this morning. <laughs> That's all I can do. But guys, uh, let me just give you this mic for one second and uh, tell us tell us a little bit about the mission. Just briefly, because I know you're going to be coming up in, in a couple of weeks or in a month or so, whatever that is. Um, just tell us a little bit about the work and some of the faces or challenges you face and you have a baby on the way and what's what's in front of you. So it's all kind of the easy stuff about who we do and what we work with. Yeah. Uh, we work with the nearly six million Muslims of Thailand. Inside that number, you only have about 400 who actually put the faith in Jesus. Come on. From there, you have no national church that's arisen from those 400, and you have nobody who's become a pastor. So the work that we do is genuine 
pioneering working community. And we go in and we meet the needs, just like you do here at Hillside. We teach English not because we love it, because it's an open door that is simple and accessible. And from there, we go and build those relationships and start small cell groups. And I would love to get up and say that after our three years in Thailand, that we have a plethora of Christians we can point you to. But it is slow, groundbreaking work. On average, it takes most school about 10 years to come to faith in Jesus. And so we are on this process. We're getting ready to launch down south where our, our heart is. That is the heart of Islam in Thailand. And there are not, we are the first AG workers to ever go there. And the numbers are staggering. We'll be in a town of almost a million with 25 churches across all denominations. We, we've passed more churches coming from our house in Milwaukee to here than in the entire town of Hawkeye where we will be living. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, when you step out and you say, God, I'm going to do what you've called me to do, you know, the enemy really hates it. And, uh, you know, we've sent out prayers. I know there's people in here who have been praying for us. And thank you. Thank you. We have desperately needed your prayers. And God has answered miraculously and healed miraculously. About halfway through our term, doctors told us Kyle had cancer. We went back in. We had people praying. God completely healed him. They couldn't find it. Will you continue to pave the way 
Thank you, Father, that you are the orchestrator of the church. You are the one who is the head, and you guide and direct the footsteps of the righteous. And so, Lord, may we, as your children, be ever cognizant of the fact that you are speaking to us, Lord. May we hear these that have said yes to go into the foreign field, God. Go before them, make rough places smooth, we pray. Even as we sang that song about the fires and the water and the valley of the shadow, Lord, we recognize that the prophet Isaiah reminds us when we walk through the waters, you will be there. And through the flame, we will not in any way be drowned and we will not in any way be burned. For you are with us. You are the one who takes us by the hand and leads us before the nations. God, will you bless and anoint and equip and supply and provide. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. And all those people said strong, amen. 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 Thank you guys for praying. Thank you guys. Check her off. We love you. Sunday. So buckle your seats. We're in John chapter 9. I invite you to turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 9 as we continue to walk through the gospel of John, as we continue to walk through uh, the word of God. And uh, John chapter 9, it is a continuation, if you will, of John chapter 8. And I'll, and I'll remind us what's going on in John chapter 8 in just a few moments. I want to read at least the first 14 verses. I might go uh, 16 verses. If you're taking notes this morning, I have about six different titles. This could be, which I told Pastor Dennis, I have probably six different sermons, which you won't get, <laughs> at least this morning you won't. Uh, we're going to focus on just some of the humanity of the chapter. Some of the humanity of the chapter. Because I think there's both reminders for us as children of God, and I think there's also some caution for us in what we see happening in even Jesus' disciples at this time. And so I think those are uh, good for us, good, good reminders, if you will. So read with me or follow along with me. I'm in John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors of those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. 
Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. We find Jesus again in an interesting space, in a precarious space. Kind of a quick recap of where we've been and what we've seen in John. Uh, remembering that John's gospel, these 20 plus chapters, they represent 21, roughly 21 days in the life of Jesus, of his three and a half years of public ministry. 21 days. The majority of these 21 days are centered and focused around the feasts or the festivals, if you will, of the Jewish religious calendar. There are seven in the religious calendar, the Mosaic feasts, and there are two other than Mosaic feasts, the Feast of Purim, as well as the Feast of Lights, if you will, or Hanukkah, as we understand it. So, this portion of Scripture goes back to chapter 7 when his brothers were encouraging him go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is the last of the Jewish feasts in the religious calendar. It's the last one in the fall. It lasts literally seven days and then there is a holy convocation on the eighth day as well, which is a Sabbath day. It's a high Sabbath, an additional Sabbath to the normal 52 Sabbaths in the week. And so it is the 70th appointed time, if you're familiar with the appointed seasons in the Jewish religious calendar. It is the last one. It is now come to that last seven days, and ultimately they're on the eighth day. So the festival of, or the Feast of Tabernacles has come to an end, and it was, remember on that great day, the last day, that when at the most pivotal point, when the priest symbolically poured out that brass jar, symbolically pouring out water, but no water coming out because there was no water in it. They had gone every single day for the preceding days over to the pool, scooped water up, came into the temple courts, poured out the water in symbol or in type of God providing water from the rock while they were in the wilderness. But on this seventh day, there was no water because they're no longer in the wilderness. But they're praying for Messiah to come. And so hundreds of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem all converging on the temple area in the temple courts. They're now praying this prayer from the prophet Isaiah, praying for Messiah to come who would also be that living water. And it's there that Jesus stands and makes the declaration, Is anyone thirsty? Let him come unto me, and I will give him life, and out of him will flow rivers of living water. So he makes the declaration, The Messiah you're looking for, who will give living water, he's here! And you can only imagine now the Pharisees as they sought to kill him already. Remember Passover a couple of months earlier, Jesus healed the man by the pool of Bethesda, the man who had been infirm for 38 years. He did that on the Sabbath, told the man, stand up, rise up, 
gather up your mat and walk. And that was on the Sabbath as well. And because Jesus being a rabbi and a teacher teaching someone else to violate, quote unquote, their understanding of the Sabbath, that was punishable by death. And so they have been seeking his life. And now here we come to our text again and we discover, wait, it's the Sabbath again. It is the eighth day. It's that 70 in the point in time and the eighth day. This is, this is worthy of your own study. And this is just a little side note. Eighth day. Eighth day. We have seven days in our week. That's interesting in and of itself if you're having a conversation with someone who does not have faith in atheist or an agnostic, you can certainly ask them why there are seven days in the week. That has religious implications. And it will be the kind of link for a stimulating conversation. But the eighth day, what does the eighth day represent? Well, 21 different times eighth day is referenced in text about something. The circumcision of a child is on the eighth day. There's some very interesting implications about that. They've, they've done medical studies now and discovered that there's a certain, there's a certain um, chemical in the human male that is produced, and I think it has to do with vitamin K. I don't remember the details, but it peaks. Its highest level in the body is on the eighth day, and that's what helps coagulate blood. And then it decreases the rest of someone's life. That's a very interesting little fact. You can do some more research on that. But eighth day, eighth day, eighth day, biblically has a significance of new beginnings. It begins the new week. It is the beginning of a new religious calendar, if you will, the eighth day. And so I think it also has some significance in our text today. We'll look at that in a macro sense, if you will. So... Jesus' brothers have encouraged him. He's been there. It's now the eighth day. And uh, our narrative begins in chapter 8 on the eighth day. You would remember uh, a couple weeks ago when we looked at the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. That's the morning of the eighth day. They bring her before Jesus. And that whole scenario unfolds. Ultimately... You remember her response when, after all of the words of Jesus, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their rocks and walked away. Jesus arises and says, woman, which was a term of respect, ma'am, where are those accusers of yours and has no one condemned you? And she says, there are none, Lord, Lord. Very different term to be used. I believe it's an indication that she became a believer in the Lord at that point. And something was said to her at that point. He said that neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Eighth day, new beginnings. If your faith is in Jesus, you've had an eighth day experience. You've, be, you've become a new creation in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. And here's a couple of things just to be reminded of that God has empowered you. Number one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. No matter where you are today, no matter what you've done up to this point, if your faith is in Jesus, the penalty for sin has been paid for. Thanks be to God. He demonstrated his love toward us while we were sinners. Christ died for us. He took the penalty of our sin. Thanks be to God. 
No condemnation. So we need not walk around feeling condemned and feeling guilty. There is no condemnation and there is no guilt. It's been paid for. But there is the encouragement that he gives at that moment too. He says, go and sin no more. For the believers, listen, we've been given direction, a mandate to go. And sin no more. Not only the directive to live holy, live pure, live right and just, but the empowerment to do so. Jesus doesn't send us out without giving us the ability to go out and sin no more. Can I get an amen? amen. There's power in Christ. In Him are all of the blessings. In Him are all of the promises. In Him is power. Power to overcome. And so, this woman. And then chapter 8 continues in verse 13, and it goes on to this whole dissertation about whose father is who, and the father, Jesus' father is in heaven, and their father is the devil. And I mean, it just, this, this conversation just. I mean, it's, it's almost like, yike. And these guys are getting real derogatory with them, saying, well, you're kind of a bastard, and blah, 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 blah. You don't even know who your dad is. And all these statements are being made. And ultimately, they say, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, oh, well, okay, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. They're like, wait, you're not even 50 years old. And you, you see Abraham? And he says, listen, before Abraham was... I am. And he claimed deity. And immediately they picked up stones to stone him because he was claiming to be God. The same name that was given by God at the burning bush when Moses was talking, whom shall I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am. You tell them that I am sent you. That name Jesus laid claim to before Abraham was, I am. They knew beyond the shadow of doubt that Jesus was claiming to be Messiah. And they picked up stones and stones. And that's what we pick up in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is linked, you see, because it says Jesus, chapter 8, 59 says, He hid himself and passed through the crowd and left. Now, as he passed by. Now, I just want you to get your heads here for a moment. This is this is something fascinating to me. He's like not going to get stoned because he's slipping away. Think about the last time your life was in danger because some people were going to throw rocks at you and kill you. Or you were in a situation where someone had a gun. Or your life was being threatened by something. There's like, God, get out of here. And you we kick into the fight or flight mode. It's innate in us. The Son of God, in the midst of his flight mode, it's not my time. I'm not dying by stones. I've come for the cross. I'm on my way. As he's slipping away, and his disciples are with him, so there's like a little entourage, and they're making their way through this crowd, and again, there's probably hundreds of thousands of people there. And there's not 
my, you know, bird's eye view. They don't have cameras in the sky, cell phones going, yeah, I think I can see him right now. He's turning left on the east gate, and he's heading down, you know, first street. No, that's not how it was. He's, they slip it through. And so there was probably a little bit of confusion. I mean, imagine the, the Pharisees, they probably were reaching into their pockets for rocks. The truth is they probably had the rocks on them already because they're looking for a reason. But even if they had to look for rocks and get them, they'd turn around and like, where'd those guys go? And there's just a stir. It's in that setting that it says in chapter 9, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. He saw a man who was in need. And we have no idea what the conversation looked like. Maybe they were still moving. Maybe Jesus paused and stopped and the disciples all kind of bumped into him. And then they asked the question. They see the same guy. And clearly they have information about this guy. They knew that he was blind, yes, but blind from birth. This is probably not the first time they've passed by this guy. Which, if your theology is that Jesus healed everybody when he saw them, this probably would warp that a little bit. And you should be reminded of what happened in chapter 5 when he healed only one man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus has purpose in what he's doing and why he does what he does. And so, they asked, here's the dialogue, because disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind? And so, I guess I have I have some I have some thoughts. Uh, what slide are you on right now, John? Go to, go to the next slide. Uh, uh, let's uh, back up one. There you go. Exodus chapter three. This week I was reminded of Exodus chapter three because it just is absolutely captivating to me that Jesus in this stressful moment is aware of his surroundings. And I think that's an encouragement for you and me. We sang about the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties and the, the heart when we walk through the waters, when we we'll go through the flames, when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus, our good shepherd, is very aware of his surroundings and the people that are around him. And I would suggest to you, he is our example. He's our example. Some of us sitting in this room right now are going through some very difficult times. Heartaches, hardships. Some of us are going through some amazing times. So whether it's difficult or amazing, there's no not others first mentality. Others first. What's going on in the lives of others around me? Not me, 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 let me tell my story, let me make sure I can get my information in, blah, 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 blah. Okay, gotta go now. And not being aware of what's going on with those around us. Jesus is an example, and he reminds me. This week he reminded me of our study in the time of the book of Exodus. When in Exodus, the children of Israel were in tremendous hardship in Egypt. And Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, you can, you can write those down, make sure you look those up. The Word of God tells us that God sees the oppression of His people. Can you just say, God sees with me? God sees. 
He sees your oppression. Kyle, you said, man, the enemy isn't excited about it. Nina, you said the enemy isn't excited about it. They're throwing all kinds of door blocks and footholds and anything and everything they can to prevent you from going and being obedient to finish the work that God has called you to do. Just like he's, the enemy's doing that to them, he's doing that to you and to me. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's the one roaming around, roaring like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's the one who's got, you know, the wiles of the devil that we've heard of. He's crafty. This one who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. They're working. And so, God sees the oppression of his people. Then it goes on to say in Exodus 3 and verse 7 that he hears the cry of his people. Will you say that with me? God hears. God hears. He's the God who sees. He's the God who hears. Then it says, He knows their afflictions. Do you know that God knows your afflictions? He's not just up there going, well, this will all be over soon. <laughs> Jesus, uh, could you get me another glass of iced tea? No, he knows what you're going through. He knows your circumstances. He knows your heartaches. He knows the affliction, the whippings that they were getting on their backs for not working hard enough. No bricks with straw anymore because of your complaints. Make them without straw and keep the same quota. The sweat of their brow. Affliction, the taskmasters, they were brutal. If 500,000 Israelites lost their lives in one day, they would be replaced with 500,000 more. They did not care about the lives of the Israelites. They were slaves. God said, I know your afflictions. And I just want you to know, no matter what you're being afflicted by today, by the enemy who is relentless and who hates you, because he hates God. And you have the potential to give glory to God. He's working. God knows what you're going through. Small or big. And then the fourth thing he says in Exodus chapter 3 verse 8. He came down to deliver his people. That's the same God. That's, this is Jesus who just claimed to be the I Am. He's that God. He came down. And guess what? He came down literally at this time. The incarnation. Man was in need. We have a sin condition. And we had a need. And God said, I'm going to take care of that. And he came down. He saw. He hears. He knows. And he comes. And he and I, that's probably all we're going to have time for this morning, guys. Um, I know the worship team's going to be coming in a moment. I have a couple of additional thoughts. Let me, let me say this, because I do have a caution. Notice this with me real quickly. Those five things about our God, remember those five things. And you can take a photo of that slide and jump us back up. But here's a caution. Notice that the disciples, they ask this question, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents.
that he was born blind. What's the implication there? That somehow they thought in their minds that that man, before he was born, could have sinned. Wait, what? Listen, here's the caution. In today's society, and in today's arena, there are a lot of places that we can go to get teaching from, quote-unquote, the Word of God. You can click on the internet, read any article and every article, and every one of them will sound good. But it doesn't mean it's biblical truth. It doesn't mean it's good theology. Right? There's proper exegetical studies identifying what the text was saying to the original, uh, by the original writers, the Holy Spirit through the original writers, to a certain people, and what the text is actually saying, hermeneutics, and then the homily, what does it actually mean in application to your life and to my life? Joel, can I get an amen for that? I mean, that's a, that's a big deal, isn't it? That's a big deal. That's, I mean, that's a big, big deal. Here's the deal. They had a theology that was a taught theology in the synagogues that a infant, a child, being formed and fashioned in their womb could sin. And it was based on Esau and Jacob wrestling in the womb. They're wrestling because something was done wrong. And if there's something done wrong, there could be sin. And so they made assumptions about someone else's condition and circumstances. Here's the caution. You and I do that every day when we see people. We see their plight, we see their condition, and we immediately kick into why is this person going through that? How did they get where they are today? And we fill in the blanks. And it becomes prejudice in our lives. You only need to think about the guy who's sitting on the corner at the off-ramp at the freeway. Don't want to catch on with that guy sometimes. He's got the sign, out of work. And immediately we're categorizing, well, probably got there yourself. And maybe he did. But we don't know. We don't know. And so there's a caution here not to make assumptions about people in the midst of their circumstances. Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes we can get pretty high and mighty. Well, I'm so glad I'm not like that sinner. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the sinner who was justified in the eyes of God? Was the Pharisee? I don't think so. It was the sinner who begged for mercy. Right? Let's be careful. Let's be careful because guess what? It'll come out. It'll come out in our conversations. Right? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Out of the abundance of the heart, the <laughs> it's going to come out. And don't deny it. How about just confess it? And say, Jesus, change me. I want to think more like you. And I'm like, let me give you a, and Joel, you can help me with this too at some point in time maybe, but 
The Greek and the English, the, uh, me, the Greek and the Hebrew does not have punctuation in the manuscripts. So the translators, when they're translating, they're trying to identify where does it make sense to put the right punctuation. And I believe in our New King James Version of the Bible, the punctuation is incorrect in this in these verses. If you look at, and, and bear with me, and gentlemen, you can bring the verses back up here. Uh, Jesus answered, verse 3, it says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. I think that's a great place for a period and not a comma. Now watch this. But that the works of God should be revealed in him, comma, I must work the works of him who sent me this day. It's not a sin that caused the condition, which would lead us to say, well, if God's in heaven and he's causing things to happen in people's lives that are bad so that someday later he can do some good, that just doesn't feel right. That makes God seem kind of sadistic. But on the other hand, if because of the condition of the fall of man that we live in a corrupt world and therefore bad things happen to bad people, there's none good, no, not one. Remember, look at your neighbor and say, you're one bad dude. You're one bad dude. Because we're all bad. There's none good, no, not one. You remember in Mark, Jesus said, why do you call me a good teacher? There's only one good, that's God. He didn't deny that he was God. He just said, why do you call me good? There's only one good, God. Why do bad things happen? Because there's a corrupted world. We live in a, a broken world, the curse. And therefore, there's causal effect, genetically, this man was born blind, not because he sinned or his parents sinned, period, they didn't sin, that's not the cause, but so that the works of God may be revealed in this man, I must do the works of him who sent me while it's still day. So Jesus is there and he says, the work of God is going to be revealed in this guy today. I must do it. Now listen to this. For those of you who want to aspire to be Greek and Hebrew scholars, uh, you can look this up in a Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and you would find that the word I there, which if you have a study Bible, it probably has a little number by it. You check your center column and it says the NU renders this we. We must do the works. Who was he with? Here's what his disciples. What? But that the works of God should be revealed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me, Jesus said, while it is day. Listen, you're going to come across some people this week who are going through some tough stuff. And they're going to be asking the question, why? You don't have the answers to why. You have the answer to who. The question who. And it's the Jesus, the works of Jesus would be revealed in them. That he's sending you to them. That on that day you see it and you say, oh, it's not because he sinned necessarily. It's not because his parents sinned necessarily. It's potentially so that the works of God may be revealed in him. We, me, must do the works of God and I can address what's their plight. Now, I will tell you that will challenge your week 
it may require of you something more. Right? It might require more. But watch what God unfolds and watch and see the miracles that God wants to do through us, his kids. Christmas every day. Because it's a gift when we get to cooperate with our Father, our Savior, and the Spirit of God. Amen? Amen. It's Communion Sunday. And uh, we're going to be coming back to John chapter 9 in two weeks. Picking back up with this very story because I have uh, more, more notes. And we're not going to do this morning. And I really believe that it's applicable stuff for our daily living. Our daily living. Remember, some folks came to Jesus and said, what must we do to do the works of him who sent? Jesus said, this is the work. This is the work. Believe. Believe. And our mission, the goal that we are engaged in, is to help people become believers. Believers in Jesus. Not believers in you, not believers in me, not believers in, uh, you know, our, the way we quote-unquote do Sunday service. Not, not any of those things. We want to turn people to Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Only Jesus can make a difference in someone's life. They may look at you and don't, please don't say, well, look what I've done, yah, 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 yah. Look what Jesus has done for me, in me, through me. It's nothing. I am nothing. And I can do nothing without Jesus. We can do nothing without Jesus. And so, as we come to the communion table this morning, I would just remind everybody here, we serve an open communion. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, please, this is, it's a reminder of and to us of what Jesus has accomplished upon the cross at Calvary. He shed his own blood and died. A substitutionary death, a death that each of us deserves. He died in our place. And we're reminded of what he did for us. And then when we partake of the cup, we'll talk about it in just a few moments. This cup is a representation of the new covenant in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It's Jews. And we don't believe in transubstantiation that somehow it becomes the blood. No, we, it's juice. And he said at that last supper, he said, do this often in remembrance. It's the cup of redemption. And redemption is found in Christ, in Christ alone, the new covenant. It has shed on it. So I would invite you to stand this morning with me as our brothers are up here preparing the service. If we can make our way kind of to the two center aisles and we'll receive the animals, please hold them in go around the outside or navigate through folks uh, back to your seats. Hold the emblems and in just a few moments we're going to, uh, we'll pray and we'll receive them together uh, in just a few moments. So I release you to come forward. Just come on forward and uh, please take one bread and one cup and make your way back to your seats. I cast my mind
of what you have done for us. And so we want to live our lives for you and for your glory to say thank you for what you've endured on our behalf. We thank you for taking upon yourself our chastisement, taking upon yourself the bruising and the stripes and all that you endured in your physical body. We just simply say thank God, thank God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Will you partake of the bread with me this morning? Hallelujah. On the same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus, when he had taken the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then it says, After supper, he took the cup. And if you've been a regular attender at Hillside, you know because we talk about this every month. In the Seder meal or the Passover meal, there are four cups that are to be partaken by all the participants around the table at specific times during the meal. And those four cups represent four very real statements that God made to Israel in the Exodus. You can find it in Exodus chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 6. In chapter 6, he makes four I will statements. The third statement he made is, I will redeem my people. The fourth is, I will gather my people together. The third cup is after supper. It is known as the cup of redemption. It is that cup. And remember, this is the Passover meal. They have understood redemption to that point for all of the history, 2,500 years of history of the nation Israel, the Passover lamb was the covering for their sin. And Jesus says, from henceforth, redemption is no longer in the blood of bulls and of rams. This cup, the cup of redemption, is found in my shed blood upon the cross of Calvary. He said, I will not drink of the cup of the vine again until we drink together in heaven, the ingathering. So today we hold, if you will, the third cup. And by you partaking of this today, you are doing so by your own volition, your own will. And by, by receiving this, you are indicating to everybody around you, everyone who sees you, say, I am a willing participant in the new covenant of the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the remission of my sin. I'm receiving this work that Jesus accomplished upon the cross. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement of hope. And it's a statement of reality for you and for those around you. Your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. Come on, that's good news. Amen. 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 Father, we praise you again and give you thanks for this cup of redemption. For there is... No name given under heaven and earth whereby men must be saved, saving Jesus Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone. Redemption. He became the ransom for many. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the new covenant in your shed blood. No longer the blood of bulls and rams. You offered your blood once for all. We do not have to come again and again and again and again making propitiation for our own sin. You made propitiation for our sin once for all. And you canceled the debt. Hallelujah. And so I personally say yes. And those 
in this family, as we partake of this cup together, we are saying, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And just like the woman caught the very act of adultery who was empowered to go and to sin no more, God, we want to be empowered to go and sin no more. And like the man whose eyes were opened up by the very clay, that God could give us fresh vision, fresh insight, both privately in our relationship with you and publicly with our all relations with mankind, that we would have your sight, new sight. So help us, Lord. We love you. We give you thanks. Let's